years. Steward and not king. We're stewards, not kings. I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a problem. And the problem was there was no king to sit on the throne of the land of Gondor. So instead, in the absence of a king, there was a steward. And the job of the steward was to watch over the throne until the return of the king. Now, the steward was highly regarded and he was a trusted, but he was a servant of the king. And he was charged with overseeing the entire country in the absence of the king. However, no matter how important the steward was, because he was important, and no matter how long the steward or the descendants of the steward watched over the throne of Gondor after him, no steward could ever become the king of Gondor. Because in that mythology, only the heir of Elendel, the line of the true king, could ever sit on the throne of Gondor. So the steward was very important, but the steward was not the king. And he could never become the king. He would always be a servant of the king. A servant and a steward, but not the king. And friends, that's exactly how the Apostle Paul describes himself and those that serve the church. You might remember that this is continuing what we've been studying. And if we take and pick up from where we were last week in chapter 3, we remember that Paul was addressing divisions that had risen up in the church in Corinth. In the church in Corinth, they were conflicted over different leaders in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And Paul says, wait a second. None of us are the king that you follow. We're just stewards. We're servants of Christ. You follow Christ. We are but servants and stewards of Christ. In fact, in, in chapter 3, you might remember last week, we heard, Paul, uh, we heard Paul say in chapter 3, verse 5, What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, is the Lord assigned to each. He says, we're not kings. We're servants. We're stewards. So stop regarding us as kings and then warring over allegiances. Stop your proud and your haughty boasting and your division because we all ultimately are servants of the same king. And here in chapter 4, Paul's continuing this argument. He goes, this is how you should regard me and Apollos and Cephas and those who lead in the church. We are stewards and servants, but we ourselves are not kings. Now, they were servants. But they weren't just saying servants, it says that they were stewards. And again, as in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, a manager or a steward of a household at that time was one who was in charge, put in charge of the master's household in the master's absence. In fact, Jesus told a, a couple of parables about stewards in the Gospels. One of them was in Luke chapter 12, verse 42. It starts, Who then is the faithful and wise manager or steward? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of the food at the proper time. Now, we need to remember that in Jesus and Paul's day, travel was slow. And it was dangerous. And they didn't have instant communication like we do. They didn't have phone calls or email or texts or Zoom. So the fact is, if a master went on business, he was completely out of touch with the household. And traveling on business, being long and slow and dangerous, a master could be gone for months or even years 
at a time. And if you're going to be gone for that long a period of time, you want to put somebody that you trust over your household. And so the steward was a servant, but he was trusted as the master of the household. He was put over the whole household. Now remember, a household in that time would include everything the master owned. The master's house, the master's fields, the master's other servants, the master's business dealings, even the taking care of the master's family. The steward was no lowly slave. He was a servant, yet he was the steward in charge of everything. Now, think about it. No matter how long the steward served in that position in the household, would the steward ever become the master of that household? Well, no. The steward, no matter how well he did his job, he would never become the master. He would always be a servant of the master. So despite his position, despite his authority, despite his excellence, the allegiance of all the other servants in that household should not be to the steward, but ultimately to the master of the household. Because that steward, for as important as he was, was not the master. And Paul says, Apollo, Cephas, and I, we aren't the master of the household. You're treating us as though this is our house. This isn't our house. We're just stewards. We have position and authority, but just like you, we're servants. So don't become zealous for any one of us. Stop fighting and dividing over your preference and putting down those that feel differently than you. If you're going to boast and if you're going to be zealous, be zealous for our master. Not for any one of us, because we are mere stewards, not the king. And friends, are there stewards? Are there people that you're tempted to exalt in your mind and in your heart as king? Are there times when your own preferences and your politics and your opinions become divisive and destructive, as they were in the church in Corinth at that time? Now, note in verse 1 here, Paul writes that they are stewards, and when he specifically says they're stewards, he says we're stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. We we saw that word just a little while ago, and we noted that the Greek word mysterion isn't like a, it's not talking about mystery like Scooby-Doo or Agatha Christie mystery. It's talking about something that was previously hidden or unknown and that now has been revealed. So it was a mystery to us. But now it's been revealed. And the mystery that Paul's speaking of is the mystery of the gospel. He says Jesus Christ is the mystery. His birth, his death, his resurrection, his second coming, they were all hinted and foreshadowed and prophesied throughout time. Yet they were hidden and veiled from human wisdom. They remained a mystery. So Jesus Christ is the mystery revealed. Paul says we're not kings, but we're stewards of the king. And we rejoice In the coming of the king, we rejoice that the king's coming, the mystery, has been fully revealed. It's what we sang this morning. We opened up the service singing and inviting, really. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. The mystery of the king's coming is revealed, and we are but stewards of that king, Paul writes. We're servants of his kingdom. We're stewards of his gospel and his authority. Paul says we're not kings. We're servants and stewards. So don't divide over us, stewards. Celebrate the mystery. The mystery of the king's coming. And friends, those of you that are here today or are watching us online, do you know this wondrous mystery? 
Have you received this mystery? Have you submitted yourself to the good and to the rightful king who has been revealed? Now, we see here that not only was the pride that was going on in the church in Corinth uh, causing them to turn against one another as they fought over, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, but clearly some of them had turned against Paul himself. Paul was clearly facing some criticism and judgment from the people in Corinth. People were likely judging the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. They might not have had all, they probably didn't have all the information or understanding that Paul did, but they were judging his leadership decisions. Um, They were comparing Paul to other teachers. They found him lacking. Friends, to lead is to face judgment and criticism. There's an old saying, if you want to make everybody happy, don't go into leadership. Instead, sell ice cream. And the hardest thing about leadership is that you're not going to make everyone happy. And so you have to choose who you're going to disappoint. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I choose you. I know I've disappointed you. I'm probably going to disappoint you again because I'm choosing to disappoint you. Why? Because I serve a different master. In verse 2, Paul says, Moreover, it's required of stewards they be found faithful. Paul says, I'm a steward of that master, and that is the master that I'm going to strive to please. That is the master that I want to find me faithful. I might disappoint you, but may I never disappoint him. Although Paul is criticized and judged right now by many in the church in Corinth, he says, Ultimately, I pray that I'm judged by him to be faithful. Not by you, Corinthians, but by the Lord. Now, now Paul's not trying to avoid accountability to those that he leads. He's saying, ultimately, I answer not to any human because none of you have the whole story. There is much in leadership that you see and hear and know and understand that those you lead do not know and might not even realize have to be considered. So, ultimately, we are answerable to the all-seeing and all-knowing Lord. And that's what Paul writes in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see, Paul says, the Lord is the perfect, all-knowing, all-seeing judge. Paul says, he's the one to whom I ultimately have to give account. Why? Because he's the one who actually understands. He sees it all. He knows it all. Paul says, God's even going to disclose, he's going to reveal the purposes and the motivations of our heart. Because the problem with us and our judgments is that we are quick to attribute purposes and motivations to a person's actions or words. He said this because he thinks that. She did this because she's like that. Friends, we can see a person's behavior and we can hear a person's words, but you cannot see a person's heart and you are not a mind reader. Though we act like them, don't we? Every one of us. You don't know why a person did what he did or said what she said. In fact, sometimes the truth is, if we're really honest with ourselves, we might even do the right things, but with the wrong motivations. 
You know, we, we might look at somebody's behavior or hear their words and think, oh, that person is so kind and so generous. But the truth is that behavior or word was really self-serving because they were hoping to get something from that person. So rather than being selfless, the good or kind word or deed was done for selfish motives. The point is, we can't see the heart. But God can. Paul says, you Corinthians are judging me. But you don't have the whole story. God does, and he's the one who's going to judge me. And he's going to judge not just my actions or my words, but my very heart. And by the way, Corinthians, he's going to judge yours too. Paul says we cannot completely know or understand. And in fact, Paul goes on, and I don't know if you you hear what he's saying here. He says we can't even know or understand the motivations of our own hearts. In verse 3, he says, I don't even judge myself. He, he, he says, I don't judge myself because he's recognizing our human tendency to self-deception. Friends, never mind judging other people and their motivations. We aren't the best judges of our own motivations. You and I are not the best judges of our own hearts. We are masters of justification and rationalization, and minimization. Our motives are rarely as noble as we want to believe they are. And so Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I'm going to leave the judgment to the Lord. In verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. See, when Paul says, I'm not aware of anything, he's saying my conscience is clear. He's not saying that he's guiltless of everything or that he's reach perfection. He's saying, to my limited knowledge, my conscience is clear in the case of the specific accusations that the Corinthians are bringing against me. You know, in the same way, when we read through the Psalms, King David pled his innocence and declared his righteousness all the time. And David was never saying that he was absolutely innocent or that he was perfect in righteousness because he knew he wasn't. When King David in the Psalms claims those things, he's declaring that all of the accusations that are being right then against, brought against him by his enemies. He's saying that all of the actions that his enemies are doing against him at that moment, he's saying, my conscience is clear. I've done nothing deserving of the persecution I'm facing right now. My conscience is clear. I'm innocent of the accusations that are right now being leveled against me. Both Paul and David can claim a clear conscience while confessing that doesn't mean that they're morally perfect. Instead, both Paul and King David invite the Lord to judge them and says, Lord, reveal the deep motives of my heart. Because the truth is, I can't get down deep enough. And my motives, they're just not as pure as I want to think they are. And King David even offered a beautiful prayer. At the end of Psalm chapter 19, in verse 12, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Hidden faults. When David prays that, he's not saying those faults that you hide from other people. Paul's saying, declare me innocent from those faults that are hidden from me. Those things that I don't yet see. Those motivations that are driving me that I don't even realize. Declare me innocent of those. See, both King David and the Apostle Paul counsel, don't trust yourself. Because there's much that's hidden even from you. But the Lord sees. And the Lord will expose. 
And friends, the gospel, the good news is that the Lord can forgive. Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Church, are you humbling yourself and inviting such honest evaluation of yourself and your heart motivations by the Lord? Are you humble enough to admit that you are not the best judge of your own heart and your own motivations? Are you willing to seek out and submit to the Lord's judgment of you rather than relying on yourself and your own judgments? Friends, all of this is hard because it calls for something that none of us want. Humility. Humility. What was lacking in the church in Corinth and is lacking in the church in Camden and is lacking in humanity in general is humility. Because Paul knows that the problem in Corinth is the judgments and the divisions, they all have their root in pride. It's all rooted in pride. Verse 6, Paul continues to address the problem. He says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn not to go beyond what's written. So that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Now that phrase about not going beyond what's written, it most likely is emphasizing the importance of not going beyond what's written in Scripture. So far up to this point in the letter, Paul has quoted the Old Testament Scriptures five times to explain and justify all of his arguments and behavior. Paul says, listen, I'm not here working on my own wisdom. I'm not, I'm not going beyond what the Scripture says. Because, friends, we might be tempted to go beyond what the Bible says and add to it some worldly wisdom. Which was clearly the problem in Corinth. People were arguing, well, really good followers of Jesus follow the Scriptures and... If you want to be a really good follower of Jesus, you need to follow the Scriptures and Apollos. The Scriptures and Paul. The Scriptures and Cephas. Friends, anytime you have a Bible and situation, you're going beyond... What is written? You're adding something to the Bible as necessary to be a really good follower of Jesus. And that creates pride. Because pride then says, well, I got it right. You see, those, myself and those people like me who adhere to the Bible and, well, we clearly have it. And those that don't have clearly got it wrong. I mean, you might have the Scriptures, but if you really understood like I do, you would follow the Scriptures and Apollos. And then they're puffed up in this knowledge and they start to look down on those who don't believe as they do. That's what Paul says there at the end of verse 6, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Puffed up, literally get a big head, be full of yourself. Think of yourself as better, smarter, wiser, and look down on others who are less than. Pride. Friends, pride is the root of all sin. And because Satan, he's not going to prevail against the church from without. He can't stop us, but pride can divide us from within. Pride can and will divide a church from within. And that's what's going on in Corinth. And it's always a danger for the church in Camden and any church anywhere if we're not careful and aware of it. So Paul goes on the offensive against pride. Here in this next part, starting with the second sentence here in verse 7, he says, well, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
This is, the, this is the opening salvo in Paul's argument against pride. Because what he says here, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Everything you have, you receive. In other words, what Paul says is, all is grace. All is grace. Friends, this is the gospel. The good news is, what do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Everything you've received is a gift from God. All is grace. It's what we sang this morning. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. What do you have you didn't receive? Well, all I've needed, thy hand hath provided. It's not a result of me. It's a result of his faithfulness to me. From beginning to end, church, all is grace. A free gift that God's hand has provided. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast? If you received it as a gift, why do you boast you have it? Hey, look at what I got. Yeah, it was given to you. Why are you boasting? Like you earned it. You deserved it. You know, some theologians have actually called verse 7 Paul's theology in one sentence. Paul's theology in one sentence. We hear him repeat the same idea throughout his letters, but I think most beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, listen to what he says. For by grace you've been saved through faith, it's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? All is grace. It's a gift of God. So Paul says to the church in Corinth and the church in Camden, stop boasting. Grace pokes a hole in our puffed up sense of importance. Grace deflates us. Grace humbles us. It levels the playing field because it reminds us that all is grace. And friends, maybe God brought you here today or caused you to log on and, and join us for the live stream just to hear that, just to hear the gospel that all is grace. That salvation is a free gift of God. It's not something that you can earn, and it's not something you can make yourself good enough to deserve. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, it is a gift freely received. And friends, especially those of you that are here weary of striving, and especially those of you who, here, who are here worried about deserving, hear the gospel. All is grace. And what hinders you from receiving the free gift? And friends, if all is grace, then as Paul says, there's no room for pride, no room for boasting. So Paul continues his offensive and he brutally, brutally here skewers the Corinthians' pride. Deb did a great job reading, but she's such a good, clear reader. She didn't give us the sarcasm that Paul is using in this passage, because she's too polite to do that. No. Paul is mocking them. In verses 8 through 13, Paul outright mocks them, and he lampoons them, and he ridicules their pride and their haughtiness. He goes, you guys are so puffed up, and you're full of yourselves. And so he uses some targeted sarcasm to take them down a notch. See, these, these critics, they essentially thought that they were now kings. 
and that they had all they wanted, and they believed they possessed great wisdom and knowledge, so now they were looking down and, and judging one another. They were even looking down on the Apostle Paul. So with cutting sarcasm, Paul writes here, he goes, well, you've clearly surpassed me. I wish I was a king like you are, so wise and powerful like you've become, able to judge and look down on other people like you do. Sorry, I'm not there. You guys are pretty good. I mean, Paul's mocking them because these are servants who think they're now the kings. They think they're now the masters of the house. They've set themselves over other servants. And more than that, they set themselves over the stewards of the household, judging Paul and Apollos and Cephas, who the master himself left in charge. And so Paul compares their pride then to his and the apostles' humility. Paul goes, well, I'm not a king like you seem to think you are. I'm just a lowly servant, a steward. And as a servant of God, he's assigned me a place, not at the front of the parade where you all think you belong. He's assigned me a place at the back of the parade. And he uses this image in verse 9 that's really powerful. Listen to verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now, in those days, when the Roman army returned triumphant from, from war, then the kings and the generals would head up the parade in all their glory and their splendor. And then would come the fighting men and the soldiers. And at the very tail end of the parade, they'd be dragging along the conquered captives. The prisoners of war, those men that were destined to be humiliated and killed. And Paul goes, you all have elevated yourselves to the front of the parade. You guys are now kings and princes. Sorry, I'm just a mere servant being dragged along at the back of the parade, humiliated and on my way to die. And Paul offers a series of comparisons in verses 10 through 13, poking at their puffed up pride. He goes, well, we're just fools. You guys are pretty wise. We're weak. You all are so strong. We're in disrepute, but you're, you're now honored. We're hungry, thirsty, naked, homeless. We're the scum of the world, the refuse, literally the excrement of all things. And Paul goes, you all are so great. I wish I was as great as you are. But alas, clearly I'm far less because I'm at the back of the parade. Now, friends, although his sarcasm here is really biting, Paul's not being cruel to them in his words. He's trying to speak in a way to wake the Corinthians up from their self-deception. He's trying to show them just how foolish their thinking has become. He's trying to deflate the bubble of their pride. And in verse 14, he even says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Friends, do you hear Paul's tenderness there? My beloved children. And sometimes the Father's got to come in and speak difficult words. And even speak in a way that might seem harsh to his children. But he does so out of love. Because Paul says in verse 15, I'm your spiritual father. And friends, as a father does, when he sees his children going in dangerous and deadly directions, he speaks to them forcefully and says, repent, turn around, see the folly of what you're doing, change direction. 
And he says in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Paul says, get off your high horses from the front of the parade because you're not really kings. And join me with your rightful place, which is with me at the back of the parade. We're just servants. We're servants. So let the true king lead and lead you and you humble yourself. That's why we sang this morning, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself. Humility is the antidote to pride. Humility heals rifts that have formed in the church in Corinth and any rifts that might form in the church in Camden. Paul says, you've seen my life as an apostle. I'm not at the front of the parade. I'm at the back of the parade. We're not kings, but servants and stewards. We are the fools, the weak, the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Join us. Paul, this is not a great sales pitch. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. And Paul notes at the end here in verses 18 through 21, he says, those in Corinth had the attitude of rebellious children. You know, your parents go out of town for the weekend, so you throw a big party at your house. While Dad's away, the kids will play. And that's kind of the attitude that some in Corinth have adopted. Dad's not coming home anytime soon, so don't sweat it. We can do whatever we want. Paul's not here. And Paul says, I am coming back. And when I come back to you, how do you want me to come back to you? Do you want me to come with a rod of discipline or spirit of gentleness? Corinthians, your behavior is going to determine that one. So humble yourself. Paul says, when I get there, we'll see if there's anything to those that are opposing me. And those that are criticizing me, we'll see if there's anything to them. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Paul says, you know, these, these people that are troubling me, that are, that are criticizing me and troubling you, they're nothing but talk. There's no truth. There's no substance. And ultimately, there's no power. Friends, the kingdom of God is more than just talk. It's power. Do you remember just two chapters ago, Paul was talking about his own message? In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, My speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Because, friends, what we need is not worldly wisdom. We need power. And the gospel is power. Power of salvation, the power of transformation, the power of redemption. Paul says, you self-proclaimed kings don't have the power to do any of that. Only the true king does. And I'm a servant of the true king. I'm a steward of the mystery of his appearing and of his salvation. So you in Corinth, stop celebrating Apollos or Cephas or me. Stop celebrating us as kings. And stop thinking of yourselves as kings. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. The dawning of the true king. The king of kings and the lord of lords. In him alone is power. In him alone is salvation. In him alone is the power to be transformed. The true king with true power has come. So get off your high horse and let him take his rightful place. And you take your rightful place. Don't exalt yourself over one another because we all 
are but stewards and servants at the back of the parade. Humble yourself before Him. And humble yourself now, church, before one another, that He, the true King, might lift you up. Let's pray. Father, humble us. We're praying for that because we can't do that on our own. There's no part of us, no part of us that wants to humble ourselves. We resist it with every fiber of our being. And so we pray that you might humble us. That we might understand ourselves correctly in relationship to one another and in relationship to you. That, Father, where there's pride in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our lives, that you might point it out and that you might poke a hole in it and deflate us. That you might speak words to us like Paul spoke to the church in Corinth. Words that we don't want to hear, but that we desperately need. Humble ourselves. Humble us, Lord. That you then, by your mighty hand and by your power, might lift us up. That we might be saved. That we might be transformed. That we might be useful and faithful servants to you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In closing. Stand with us and sing before the throne of God.